Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. It's terrific that a, a worker early in their life can borrow money to own a house sooner than if they had to save up to buy the whole house outright, for example. So a mortgage is a great thing. It's wonderful that someone can buy into a mutual fund sort of structure and own a lot of little tiny pieces of investing instead of making one giant potentially risky bet. Uh, but just like food, you know, we can kind of take this too far. And, you know, I, in some of my writing, have referenced things like, you know, Cheetos or Twinkies. You know, they're sort of food-like substances <laughs> at a certain point. You can't identify a single whole ingredient that's gone into them. The same has happened with finance. When you look at some of the more esoteric parts of finance, which are gigantic these days, you know, it's funds of funds of funds or um, derivatives of derivatives of derivatives. The, the real value that's created in those extra layers of processing, I, I think, is a very open question. I'm very pleased today to introduce Catherine Collins. Catherine is founder and CEO of Honeybee Capital, an investment advisory firm that aims to connect investing with the real world. Prior to setting up Honeybee, Catherine had a long successful career in traditional fund management. She was head of US equity research at Fidelity Investments and later, as portfolio manager, was responsible for investment decisions for the multi-billion dollar Fidelity America funds. Her work at Honeybee today is focused on illuminating a more human and natural path to investing. In particular, she's interested in applying natural science and the principles of biomimicry, a broad approach where systems are modeled on biological processes to investing. Thank you very much, Catherine, for taking the time today to speak to me for this podcast. I'm very much looking forward to uh, hearing your story and uh, the experiences, many experiences you've had in the financial services industry and what you're doing today with Honeybee. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. So you have a very interesting background, um, uh, a very, uh, I suppose, in one sense, uh, what you call a traditional finance background, um, and you've uh, moved into uh, a, a very exciting area now uh, you, the, with the investment and the, the areas of uh, biomimicry and, and inspired by nature. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and maybe also then how you came to set up Honeybee? Absolutely. Uh, so my professional background is, is very rooted in, in conventional finance. I spent 18 years at Fidelity Investments in the U.S. I was an analyst, a portfolio manager, and the head of the research team there for quite a long time. Uh, and, and it's funny, when I explain that, people seem to think that my current work, which is focused, as you said, on biomimicry and theology and investing and the intersection of all these fields, um, some people feel like that's a big departure, but when I started investing, I was really taught to look at companies as, as actors in the world. And so really the essential question was, when you're investing, what is it that you want to see happening in the world and how can you best foster that? So the way that I was trained at Fidelity was to think of investing as a very connected activity. Um, and yet finance over the last 20 plus years has 
really taken an increasingly disconnected view uh, between finance and the actual world. And so my work now is really just focused on reconnecting all those pieces that I think underneath it all actually have maintained that connection throughout. We've just kind of forgotten that in some of our analysis and decision making. Right, that's interesting. And and what would you see as some of the uh, the uh, ill consequences? Um, that's not even a word, is it? <laughs> Sorry, let me just say. Uh, um, uh, what would you say are some of the adverse consequences of uh, how finance has changed, and what are some of the you know positive outcomes that you would expect if you followed this uh, this approach that you're working with at the moment? Sure, I, I think the. Um... The clearest way to explain what's happened to finance is to maybe draw some parallels with what's happened in our food systems. So I live in New England in the United States. There is no sun, it seems, for months at a time in the winter. I'm thrilled that we have processing technology for food to get us through the winter, or otherwise I'd be eating nothing but turnips for six months. Uh, same thing in finance. There's some level of coordinating and processing and intermediaries that actually make finance much easier. It's terrific that a, a worker early in their life can borrow money to own a house sooner than if they had to save up to buy the whole house outright, for example. So a mortgage is a great thing. It's wonderful that someone can buy into a mutual fund sort of structure and own a lot of little tiny pieces of investing instead of making one giant potentially risky bet. Uh, but just like food, you know, we can kind of take this too far. And, you know, I, in some of my writing, have referenced things like, you know, Cheetos or Twinkies. You know, they're sort of food-like substances <laughs> at a certain point. You can't identify a single whole ingredient that's gone into them. The same has happened with finance. When you look at some of the more esoteric parts of finance, which are gigantic these days, you know, it's funds of funds of funds or um, derivatives of derivatives of derivatives. The, the real value that's created in those extra layers of processing, I, I think, is a very open question. So in many ways, my work now is just setting out to peel away some of those extra layers of processing and intermediation that we've added so that you can see the real ingredients in your investing. And once you know what you're actually investing in, it's not that hard to start to map out what might be the social consequences or the environmental consequences and to see if those actually align with, with what you intend as an investor. Uh, so first things first, just getting back to that, that sort of Whole Foods approach to finance where you can actually see uh, where your money is going and why. Uh, and then you can start to work on some of the tougher questions about, you know, is this the function that you actually were looking for in your investment? Is it actually having the impact in the world that, that you want to see? Right, right. It's very interesting. So what, what, what do you call this, Catherine? Uh, so I call it biomimicry investing, but I will say um, I've noticed that our language can be very alienating. Um, even simple language like sustainability is something that a lot of people who are trained in conventional finance shy away from a bit. They somehow feel like that's going to detract from the analytical rigor. Um, obviously, I completely disagree. I think it actually adds to the analytical rigor. Uh, but I try hard in my work to avoid language that might cause people to opt out of the conversation. So you'll notice like on our Honeybee site, it actually doesn't doesn't lead with terms like ESG or sustainability or social impact. Um, it just presents the ideas as they are, and, and tries to engage people with, with the substance. 
Right, right. And, and what does uh, biomimicry mean and how do you uh, think it's interesting when it comes to investing? What, what, what are the lessons? Sure. Well, it, biomimicry in some ways is a very ancient practice. You know, if you go all the way back to the beginning of written uh, forms of human history, you see people looking to nature for wisdom. So at its essence, it's very old. But in its modern practice, uh, biomimicry has taken a couple of really important steps in its own evolution. Uh, and this, this movement has really been led by Janine Benyus and her team in Montana in recent years. Uh, at its heart, biomimicry centers around this, this deceptively simple question, what would nature do? Uh, how would nature perform the function that I'm trying to perform right here? But I say it's deceptively simple because I, I think the question itself is, is kind of quietly revolutionary. Um, first, it starts with a question. It doesn't start with a plan or an RFP or a spreadsheet or design specs. It just starts with this curiosity. And in order to answer that question, you actually have to know what is it exactly that you're trying to accomplish. And from there, you can start to explore what the natural world has to offer. Um, so I find that it's just a great reorientation in that it causes you to be more specific about your actual goals and at the same time more expansive in your thinking. And there aren't too many tools I've found that allow for both those things at once. Great. That sounds really interesting. Can you give me an example of how that might work or, or an investment that you might have made or advised on that was inspired by this way of thinking that you might not have made using more conventional means? Oh, sure. So uh, I recently invested in a company that makes uh, a lot of enzymatic products, so products based on enzymes uh, that are mostly uh, all naturally occurring substances. Uh, and here there are two layers of the biomimicry application. One is the question, what do you want to invest in? And can you look at that with a biomimicry lens? And so I was looking for companies that offered fundamental building blocks that could help to decrease the toxicity of a lot of the products that we use every day. And so enzymatic solutions are a big piece of that puzzle. Um, so there was a, an answer to the question of what to invest in that was very interesting. Um, what's just as interesting to me is, is the how. Uh, how do you actually perform the investment process itself? Are you taking a systematic view of things or are you taking a, a falsely narrow view? Um, and in this case, it was really analyzing the broader system and its needs that eventually led me to, to the what I wanted to invest in. Um, so there's sort of biomimicry on two different levels in that example. And uh, it's, it's a really great check, I think, to um, our own processes to see if they are as much in alignment with healthy natural systems as possible. And, and when they're not, it raises some really important questions. Um, in some of my investing the what, what I want to invest in is very clear, but the how is is still very much a human construction. So, you know, I'm going to invest very aggressive three-year venture capital money in a breakthrough new biomimetic process that is probably going to take 20 years to develop. Well, <laughs> there's a mismatch there, right? The what doesn't match the how. And so I try to use biomimicry on, on both levels of my decision-making. Right, that's fascinating. And and do you uh, advise uh, investors, or do you have your own investment funds, or how does that all work, Catherine? Uh, so Honeybee is an independent research firm, and really, what I try to offer folks is an ability to ask better questions. 
So instead of doing what I used to do, which is provide very specific recommendations on stocks or different investment opportunities, I'm really offering now a set of um, mental models, to use Charlie Munger's language, different ways of thinking about some of the more important and complex issues of our time. And from there, I trust that our readers and our clients can apply those mental models to whatever their own home context might be. Um, I have to admit, this isn't for everyone. You know, we've all been trained to want quick and preferably easy <laughs> answers. Uh, but for folks who really want to engage in, in these questions and come to their own conclusions, uh, that's bio, uh, Honeybee and Biomimicry are a great fit. Right, right. And do you also uh, use, you know, conventional EPS and, and you know, P ratios and, and conventional financial models as well? Do you integrate those together or do you work? I do. Work yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because um, pretty often in our sustainability oriented conversations, there's there's an implication of either or. And this idea that you're going to throw out everything that currently exists and start fresh uh, I really see this as an and kind of solution. I still use all of the conventional tools of finance that I was trained in for so many years. But as with any set of tools, they, they don't do everything uh, that I would like them to do. And so looking to biomimicry and natural systems as a complement and an extension uh, to those other tools has been really, really valuable. And to have just one without the other would be falling short. Right, absolutely. That's very interesting. Now, I remember, well, back in uh, some time ago, there were books like The Tower of Physics and, and things like that. And um, there, it seems to me it's quite a challenge to integrate uh, kind of philosophical ideas or ideas uh, to, to, to bring together in this kind of cross-disciplinary approach that you're kind of talking about. And I, I, I just wonder, to what extent do is, is there danger of kind of a of fallacious thinking of mixing up kind of metaphors and and to what extent do you do you really need to to have a, an expert understanding of the the you know the biology or the the, na the of the the natural process in order to to make the right decision because you know very often we work with quite simple uh, models of how the world actually operates even in a you know biological systems uh, way that, you know, that a, a biologist or a trained scientist would say, actually, it's not like that at all. It's much more complex. Yes. I'm so glad you asked that because um, there is a real danger, I, I think, in any discipline of um, sort of picking and choosing uh, whatever happens to fit with <laughs> something you've already decided, you know, and not taking a real complete kind of thoughtful, thorough view of things. Um, what I like about using biomimicry and natural systems as, as sort of an analytical counterpoint to more conventional analysis is that it tends to highlight different areas of opportunity and, and also different areas of risk. Um, sometimes for all of us, if, if you get very engaged in a specific uh, professional endeavor or a specific line of questioning, it's pretty easy to lose sight of the broader context. And biomimicry has a wonderful way of highlighting some really essential points. So, for example, if I'm analyzing a company and it's in a very energy-intensive uh, endeavor, you know, maybe they're manufacturing something that requires high heat, for example, um, if I'm doing nothing but looking at manufacturing companies all day long, that just starts to be normal and I accept it. If I'm using biomimicry, I'm constantly reminded that there's something amiss here. You know, there's, there's a fatal flaw 
in this energy intensity. And at some point that represents a risk to the business or the company or the product, you know, it shouldn't be, uh, that hard to make what you're making. <laughs> and so, you know, there are moments in time when that's a big advantage to a company, but to be unaware of how, how that is not something that generally is able to persist over time is a real fatal flaw and a blind spot for a lot of investors. Um, so I love looking at just the, the major principles of biomimicry as kind of a test against um, whatever activity I'm engaging in. And it, it usually does illuminate some major gap uh, in the organization's long-term uh, viability, which wouldn't necessarily come up in conventional uh, business or financial analysis. Right. That's very interesting because I guess you have this kind of locking in of ideas that people are all looking at things in the same way and therefore, you know, uh, I guess um, open to groupthink and, and, and things like that. Um, Absolutely. You know, we, we're all trained to be so clever and efficient in our professional endeavors. And, and that's awesome. I've been trained that way, too. But there comes a time when that efficiency actually cuts away at your longer term credibility and it adds risk instead of removing it. And so, again, I think of biomimicry as almost an insurance policy against being too quick to yes. uh, move ahead. Yes. And what about the kinds of returns that you're looking for? Because I, you know, we maybe talk about this uh, a little later, but the whole growth and impact investing, which I think, well, it's umbrella term covers a lot of different kinds of investors, I guess. But there are certainly some investors out there that are uh, willing to, you know, look for or accept lower rates of return if they, the, you know, if, if, for investments with, with a higher level of social impact. Does that play into this idea at all? It does. And, and yet I think sometimes our starting point for thinking of this question of trade-offs is a little bit a little bit too entrenched as as a presumption. Um, one of my least favorite charts in the world shows uh, social and environmental benefit on one axis and financial benefit on the other, and then has a big line across them, which implies that you cannot do anything good for the world and also make money at the same time. And <laughs> this is this is explicitly sort of a false presumption to start with if you plot all the data in the world. Uh, it's a big, messy scatter diagram. It is not at all a nice, straightforward line. And so um, in most of my conversations, I try to leave the trade-off discussion for the end of the conversation once we've talked about what exactly it is we're trying to do and why and work through what some of the options are. Sometimes at the end, you do have a trade-off to make, but I find a lot of our investment systems are set up to have that trade-off discussion at the very beginning, when in fact, I hate to admit this as a professional investor myself, but you never actually know up front <laughs> what any sort of benefits might be, whether they are financial or social. For all the planning and thoughtful analysis in the world, you know, we pretend as if that part is a science, when in fact it's, it's much more of an art. Right, and it is interesting because 
the you know we're talking about sustainability as well and the you know this uh long held belief that in some way there was a trade off that you know sustainability had, had to be a higher cost or in some way you know a uh, very deeply embedded idea and i think now there's quite a lot of research or growing uh research coming out of harvard and uh, london business school and other places that actually you know sustainable businesses do better and yes, do, do and better that's, can do that's better that's a as really um encouraging sign um that study from harvard is an especially convincing one in my mind given my research background because they actually tailored the sustainability analysis to the type of company which is something that has been largely missing in in uh, sustainability analysis to date and um, they found some really intriguing results again it's it's early days people will quarrel with the data i think for years to come but you know as an investor who's always looking for opportunity it was certainly enough to grab my attention and say wow this this is the definition of a win-win and and it should be right if you're solving some of our biggest challenges for society sh surely that should be a beneficial endeavor in all sorts of dimensions that's right yes it's very interesting now what what just moving to the more broader uh, i guess question of of the state of a uh, big question the state of uh, finance and investment uh, you know crucially important uh, area in terms of uh, financing sustainability and financing new initiatives to you know uh, social impact and and things like that um clearly you've you you you've noted some of the trends the big trends the you know the change in the nature of finance over the years um wh where where do you see uh the the industry today and you know are you optimis optimistic um because there does seem to be a growing number of uh investor groups that are looking at ESG type factors um you know there are increasing number of sustainability indices you know growth and impact investment you know how would you you know rate that is is it is it peripheral what at what stage will that or what needs to happen before that would become a really significant and important factor would you say oh i think we're well on our way um this is far and away the most exciting time for investing definitely in my lifetime i would say in about a century i mean really since public access to markets was opened up in, in the early part of the 20th century. This is the next big wave of evolution, and it's it's well underway. Um, one thing that really encourages me, although it does make things hard to analyze, is the sheer breadth and variety of evolution and innovation that we're seeing now. Everything from new and different forms of crowdfunding to different uh, vehicles for philanthropic support to ESG integration into much more conventional financial products. Almost everywhere you look, you're starting to see this wave building. And importantly, you have some big leverage points in the, the established financial system that have actually started to move. So Things like um, Morningstar in the U.S. rating every fund on sustainability metrics as well as their financial metrics is a big deal. I mean, folks will argue about it for many years to come. You know, I don't like this methodology or you should use this other data stream instead. But who cares? You know, the fact that when a consumer now looks up online and they see a financial rating side by side with a sustainability rating, that's a really big deal. And it will have a lot of ripple effects for many years to come. Uh, you're seeing also with uh, the UN principles for responsible investing, we're up over $60 trillion now 
of assets that have signed on to that protocol. And, you know, those are slow-moving ships, right? They're very big institutions, and it takes a while for commitments like that to ripple through into day-to-day activity. But you're starting to see RFPs for very big institutional investors that don't just ask, but require for asset managers to explain how exactly you're integrating ESG and sustainability information into your investment process. You know, these are these are somewhat oblique levers, but they're really powerful. And when I combine them with all of the more entrepreneurial, you know, green shoot new activity that's happening, I, I think you're seeing um, momentum at every level. That's very exciting. It's very exciting. I have to ask you the other question. What are a couple of the biggest obstacles, do you think, to the you know um, mainstreaming and further progress of these initiatives? Well, they're they're moving quickly, and um, we already touched on one, which is this strong perception of risk and return being not only inversely correlated but but predictable upfront. Um, I again have been kind of deeply schooled in more more conventional uh, financial accounting and statistics, and. I think some of us have forgotten that on the very first class, on the very first day, there's a big caveat given to all those models, which is, you know, we don't actually know as much as we think we know. So we're translating from theory to reality consistently. Uh, that doesn't mean it's truth with a capital T. It's it's just a model. Uh, so re-questioning those models has been one big um, big barrier that is changing as the theory changes and also at the same time as empirical evidence shows what you just reflected that in many cases sustainability increases profits and returns for companies and not the opposite. So you've got a big set of barriers falling there. And then the second set of barriers was really, um, I think, a little more uh, based in human nature. You know, for as much as we all care about one another, it is hard to be the first or the other or the innovator. You know, we we talk bigger than we act as a species in terms of our creative capacity. And uh, I, I liken this to a story Peter Lynch used to tell at Fidelity. He would say, look, if you own IBM and IBM goes down 50%, people ask what's wrong with IBM. And if you own PDQ Semiconductor and that stock goes down 50%, they ask what's wrong with you. Uh, and for a long time, sustainability and ESG integration has been in that second category, you know, something not very well understood that only a few people were doing. And if it didn't go well, somehow there was something wrong with the whole idea, as opposed to just, you know, a bad quarter or faulty analysis. Um, I think we're well past that stage. You know, if you want to engage in these arenas now, not only do you have a lot of company, but it's it's kind of the cool kids who are doing it. So there's not only permission, but there's actually encouragement to move in this direction. And I don't want to skip that part. None of us want to think that we're sheep to some extent, but we are social animals. And so to have company and, and a really vibrant kind of learning community as all this evolves is is a really crucial piece too. Right. That's very interesting. Um, and I'm wondering as well about uh, um, you know, the crash in 2008 uh, seems to have set, to have set back, uh, you know, quite considerably some of the initiatives around these kind of questions. 
what impact would you know these crashes do uh, arise from time to time <laughs> who knows uh, you know when what might and the degree to which it you know the impact it might have but do you think uh, you know a financial crash markets um, you know falling um, would have an impact significant impact on the development of this whole approach it's funny. I, I think um, what we saw in this last crash is is something to really learn from. Um, certainly, there were some endeavors that were slowed down or even stopped um, just by the dire circumstances of the time short term. But I think if you extend your time horizon a little more, that was one of the bigger uh, inputs into what we're seeing now. Admittedly, it's years later, but this idea that you know everything is known in the financial world and it's all working just fine and you shouldn't mess with it uh, has really been debunked. Um, you know, there's a whole generation of folks now coming up, kind of past the 2008 crash, and many of them are engaged in the financial world who actually understand the fragility of the system and the shortcomings of it uh, in a way that was only theory before and now you have you know kind of real lived experience and real empirical evidence that our current system it's not actually doing all that we hoped it would do and so I take that as a huge opportunity some folks find it very discouraging and they kind of want to secede from capitalism but I, I feel like this is the perfect backdrop for for meaningful thoughtful change and so you know, if we had another crisis, I'm knocking wood as I speak. I'm really hoping there's nothing like 2008 on the horizon. But anytime there's disruption in a in a big established system, it, it kind of opens up cracks for new things to emerge. Yes, yes. Uh, cycles of growth and decline, I guess, um, always uh, important. What time frame it takes for for the reemerge and so on of growth and so forth. I guess, as you say, is another question. Um, what about uh, the whole area of impact investing? We talked a little bit about that um, earlier. What is your view on on impact investment and uh, and how do you see that developing? Well, I'm, I'm delighted that this field is proceeding. And um, in fact, you know, we mentioned a little earlier the in effect of language. Um, a large uh, portion of people who are drawn to the idea of impact investing uh, actually were not drawn to the idea of sustainable investing or the regenerative economy. So I'm kind of in the camp of, look, as many terms as we need to get everyone <laughs> moving in this direction, it's fine by me. Um, many folks I work with are quick to point out that every investment already has impact and that, you know, starting there is a healthy starting point. Um, I do love the distinction made by impact investors, though, that they are seeking explicit positive social and environmental returns alongside financial returns from the very beginning. So, again, we've been talking a lot about reintegrating uh, different pieces that we've kept in, in silos in some of our and some of our analysis in recent years and the the very premise of impact investing is that these results are already connected and that as an investor you sh you should have goals uh, in terms of your social environmental and even governance impact and so I, I think that's a very healthy starting point and um, again it's bringing in people who we're not opting into the socially responsible investment movement or, or other precursors. So the more the merrier. 
Right. Yes. I mean, I guess it's a it's an umbrella term and covers lots of different investors, doesn't it? With lots of different motivations and so forth. What is your sense uh, about the availability of uh, of capital for for riskier, for lower return and maybe riskier social uh, projects? Because you can see, you know, there are certainly certain types of venture capital investors that are kind of adding on another layer now and they're saying well you know we will we're looking for kind of investment uh, venture capital type returns but we're also looking for social impact shall we say which is you know narrowing the you know investment universe significantly and not necessarily helping people who are you know doing active in the the riskier you know area where there may not be the same kind of returns yes i think um one of the trickier um, boundaries that we've created with, with just our legal and our financial systems is the boundary between for-profit and non-profit entities and the funding of the two of them. Um, I, I am glad to see this, this boundary being kind of tested and blurred with a lot of newer experimentation. And I think that that, um, that will continue, which is a very good thing. Um, I, I worry a little bit that, um, if you are an impact investor and you do have that process of explicitly seeking social, environmental, financial return, um, again, it's a slippery slope to considering that an art uh, versus a science. Uh, And, you know, just because you have a set of social criteria (laughs) that you're measuring against doesn't mean it's the right set of criteria, doesn't mean that your time frame is appropriate. You know, there's a lot of challenge that comes with this. And so to leave some room for some of those unanswered questions is key. Um, I work with a group called Last Mile Health that does uh, rural, ultra-rural health care in Liberia, so funding um, community health workers as a professional, supported, paid workforce, um, a critical piece in the overall system of health delivery, um, particularly in, in remote areas of the world. So terrific mission, very effective programs, um, but some of the folks who are working on the most innovative approaches to healthcare want to quantify the economic benefit as the primary reason to invest in global health. And although I think there is a terrifically um, powerful and quantifiable economic benefit, that sort of skips over the argument that access to basic care is a human right. And so I think um, for all of us engaged in the impact arena, we need to be thoughtful and careful careful when we're moving something from a philanthropic mindset to an investment mindset. Um, again, I like that those lines are blurring, but we shouldn't do it without care. Right. You're, you talk about the, the blurring of lines, and there does seem to be increasing number of what you call hybrids, I guess, where one part of the business it will be set up as a uh, non-profit and another part a uh, sister organization or something in various different forms be a for-profit um, I guess that's the kind of thing you're talking about what, what, what have you seen there I don't know how close you are to this and and what why do you find that interesting that whole area mm. well you just alluded to one um, increasingly common uh, structural solution which is to have kind of a sibling organizations of for-profits and non-profits working together. Um, I'm glad that that, um, that that solution is arising. And yet, again, if you take a little more of a biomimicry lens and you step back, you say, well, wh- why is that necessary? You know, why do we have a system that actually requires so much jumping through hoops 
just to <laughs> have different legal forms that can take in different types of, of financial support over time. You know, it, oh, eventually uh, the question will come, you know, how do we actually have a better integrated system altogether? But in the meantime, uh, there's tremendous progress being made. Um, I'm also really encouraged by the notion of B corporations and the for-profit side of the world where there's there's sort of room to explicitly state uh, what your social mission is alongside your business proposition, and they're not they're they're one and the same. You know, they're they're not answering separate questions anymore. Um, increasingly, when I work with students, either at the graduate level or the undergraduate level, you don't see this false separation. Um, and I think that is is probably the most positive, hopeful thing that I see. Um, they don't need to be retrained to make these connections, they never disconnected them in the first place. Yes, yes, the big corporations are, are growing uh, rapidly and a uh, very interesting and evolving uh, you know, uh, model, I guess, uh, for, for all kinds of uh, impact, social change and, uh, and, and, and uh, related kind of activities. I, I'm wondering, uh, you mentioned something which is quite interesting. Um, when when you talk about putting a biomimicry uh, lens, I guess on things. Uh, what about time frames? Because um, you know, many investors will say that you know long term is where you know the returns are, or long term is you know is good if, in many different ways. Um, you know, and family business are often lauded for for long term thinking and so forth. And yet, there does seem to be a rash of short term. Uh, you know, in investor behavior. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and also maybe from a biomimicry lens? Yes, absolutely. Um, this this short-termism, uh, as it's called on Wall Street, is a little bit of an epidemic. And we have, I, I think, unintentionally set up a lot of feedback loops that amplify that all the more. Um, for example, when I started as a money manager, we had our, you know, night sheets, they were called. So every day the market would close, you know, 20 minutes later, you would get your report on how your fund did that day. And, you know, I was at a big, well-resourced company, so that information came quickly. It was always accurate. You know, it was a luxury compared to uh, my colleagues at, at less resourced firms. Um, but that's it. Once a day, I knew how I had done. And by the time I was leaving Fidelity, which is quite some time ago now, uh, every second of every day, I could see my relative performance, not just in aggregate, but stock by stock, market by market. And at first, that seemed like a wonderful new toy, not to have to wait until 4.30 every day to see the reports. But in fact, it took so much time and energy and attention away, just minute by minute. Every time you glanced at that screen, you couldn't help but be sucked in. Uh, all throughout finance, you have different versions of that same story, you know, increased information and data capability kind of chipping away at our attention. Uh, and you have that on the investor side as well. Um, when I look at large pension funds and endowments, for example, you know, they have terrifically large staffs at this point and constant review meetings. And some of that is fantastic. You know, you never want to under-resource a meaningful fiduciary obligation. But what it has led to is this feeling that if you meet and you don't make a decision, you're not doing your job. And so if you look at the turnover amongst the holdings of institutions that are 
by definition, are longest-term institutions. They are charged with meeting, you know, multi-generational needs. Uh, you see turnover in many cases that's much higher than, you know, the average person's retirement plan. That makes no sense. So anything that puts us on this longer-term path is good, and I think a lot of what you mentioned in terms of the evolution in impact investing, some of the benefit of ESG integration, where the factors aren't reported minute by minute, um, all serve to help you know gently just reorient us more towards the horizon and less right in front of our faces. Right, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Now I know um, uh, I think you were at uh, SoCap uh, this year. I'm just wondering, um, anything really exciting there? Uh, how did you find that? Oh, SoCap is always terrific. It is um, by design a very big tent gathering. So if you want to just see a huge wide variety of what's happening in this in this broad umbrella. Uh, it's it's a wonderful place to be. Uh, one thing that was really highlighted at SOCAP this year uh, that was interesting was an increased uh, focus on investing in local economies and local communities. Of course this has happened you know since day one all throughout the world but the idea that that can be um, more consistent of a strategy that it can be made easier for the average person to engage in uh, is a really encouraging sign. And the second thing that I thought was very provocative was this idea uh, related to the question you asked earlier, you know, are we at the point where all of this is no longer a niche, but actually slowly starting to become the default? Um, you have a number of firms now where their ESG product has consistently outperformed their standard product. Well, how long does that have to persist before your ESG product is your standard product? Um, how big do the signatories of the UNPRI principles have to be before they say, um, look, we've already signed on to this philosophy. Um, that is our default to have ESG integration. If you don't want to do that, you need to petition us and tell tell us why you think that's a valid choice. Um, I mean, that, I'm not sure that question is being asked in too many boardrooms just yet, but it is pretty neat to think uh, that it that it might be uh, coming soon. Right, that's interesting. That's interesting. I just uh, a couple of other questions, if I might. I was thinking, um, what advice would you have for social entrepreneurs who are uh, one way or another looking for investment on their journey? Uh, it, by taking into account a biomimicry uh, lens, either to think about how they, you know, uh, fund their business or indeed how they present it to uh, potential funders. Sure. Um, I think one thing that biomimicry offers to uh, an entrepreneur of any sort that's really valuable is this idea of, of mapping your own organization in more of an ecosystem context and less of a supply chain sort of context. Um, so thinking about all the different relationships that your organization has and needs to thrive, where those points of um, benefit might be, where the points of vulnerability might be. Um, I find pretty often when I'm working with entrepreneurs, uh, they'll say something like, well, I need a million dollars to hire this big marketing team and make this big advertising push. And if you peel back from that a little bit, the question is, okay, what, do you, what is the function? Again, what would nature do? What is the function you're trying to perform? Well, you're trying to amplify your, your signal in the world. There are a million ways to do that, some of which require a million dollars, but not all. And so, you know, if you're thinking about solving for that function, there actually are many more solutions beyond raising a million dollars this week. 
Uh, and maybe that is the right solution, but just to acknowledge that that's one of many paths to get from here to there can be a very liberating thing. Um, so when I work with entrepreneurs, I, I try to get a sense of that from the beginning. And, and that works on a personal level, too. You know, Who do you have supporting you in this new endeavor? Not just who's writing the checks, but who, who's actually helping along the way. Um, and when you make that map, you also you know, have this lovely side benefit of feeling much more grateful because uh, you realize how much support you already have in different forms. So instead of working from this place of scarcity, uh, you, you, you feel like you've already got a lot of wind in your sails. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. How can uh, social entrepreneurs um, find more resources to take into account these kind of thinking to build more effective and successful uh, social organizations of social innovation? There's a lot coming along. Um, many of the entrepreneurs I work with are already involved in lots of different accelerators or boot camps or you know co-learning groups that are specifically geared towards social entrepreneurs uh, as opposed to you know more conventional software startup kind of model. Um, so I'm really encouraged by the the kind of grassroots support that most entrepreneurs seem to be finding already. Um, I I would encourage entrepreneurs to. Um, to approach as wide a group as possible of potential financial supporters up front. Um, I think, as we've talked about, you know, many parts of finance end up having very narrow connections and conversations very quickly. And so when I talk with someone and they haven't even begun, you know, no product, no revenue, no nothing, but they have a list of five key venture capital firms that they must get backing from, uh, I worry about that. Um, and try to kind of broaden the net. So there are a lot more angel groups than used to exist. There are a lot more uh, groups specifically dedicated to social venture than there used to be. Um, and I, I try as much as I can to make those personal connections as opposed to recommending a group uh, because the personal ones tend to really stick. All right, that sounds like great advice, Catherine. Thank you. And what about, uh, this is a strange question, but for what about advice for investors? Um, and, and we're talking about here more or less uh, impact investors, people who are uh, supporting in one way or another social entrepreneurs. Um, a couple of thoughts on how they can use this kind of thinking uh, to, to enhance their, uh, uh, their ability to support uh, social innovation. Yeah, I think this same this same mindset of, of sort of an ecosystem point of view is just as helpful from an investor side. Um, for example, I really care about um, investing in women and girls. Uh, if you look structurally in almost every dimension, there's less resource going there than to uh, you know than to men uh, around the world. So it seems like an easy investment opportunity. Well, if I think that that's true, the answer shouldn't be so. I invest in one specific small angel fund, and that's it. Uh, the answer should be. I ask this question every time I look at a company. What are they doing that might be helpful in this arena? I ask this question every time I make a philanthropic grant. Um, you know, does it somehow relate back to this central issue of importance to me? Um, I ask this question every entrepreneur I meet. Um, so for, for investors, I think, again, we've been taught to think in terms of pie charts. Uh, and, you know, so if an issue is important, we'll carve out a little sliver of pie <laughs> that goes to that issue. Uh, I would encourage investors to step back and, and kind of throw away the pie chart and, and think about that ecosystem model more. So 
if your support is, is a nutrient, you know, going into this whole system, how many pathways can you find that will, that will benefit the cause that you're, you're seeking to, to improve? Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. And I guess finally, what are your plans and aspirations for Honeybee over the next few years? Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, Honeybee is happily thriving as an independent research company, and I'm thrilled for that. Uh, I think two things are really intriguing right now. Um, we are being asked to shepherd uh, both individuals and institutions into this world of ESG, sustainability, impact investing, and that, that shepherding process is starting to take more tangible form, which is a wonderful and, and really an honored position to be in to kind of help guide the first couple steps as folks enter this world. Um, so that's one set of functions that's growing as we proceed. And then the other set I'm even more intrigued by, uh, and it's a little bit out there, but uh, we're getting a lot of questions um, that go even beyond ESG and impact investing. Um, people and even institutions saying, look, I really feel there's something deeper here. There's something almost spiritual that I want to reconnect. You know, my deepest, deepest values, not just a value I can check off on a spreadsheet, that I want to have more aligned in my financial life. And so I don't know what's going to happen with, with that stream of questions, but I'm thrilled that we're in an environment now where those questions are starting to emerge. Um, when I started in finance, I can't imagine someone coming in and talking about spirituality in their investment review. Uh, so stay tuned, uh, but I'm, I'm glad that both, those, both of those uh, sets of work are proceeding. Right, that's very exciting. So thank you very much, Catherine, for uh, sharing your, your thoughts and ideas and the inspiring work that you've done. It's very exciting, and I wish you the very best of success in the future. Oh, thank you, Fergal. It was a real joy to be with you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.